You're jolted awake by the clattering of swords, the wandering of men, the general noise that a group of 15 to 30,000 people makes when they wake up in the morning. You roll over in the cold morning dew, the type of cold dew that you can only get in the hills of Scotland. Northern Scotland is a cold place. It's over 56 degrees latitude north. This is within 10 degrees of, of Iceland. It's an area of the world that's never going to be particularly comfortable to live in. You're exhausted. It's very early. Your legs hurt. It's the equivalent of an alarm clock for an early flight. You've slept for an hour, maybe two, but you have to keep moving. A mass of men around you, bigger than you have ever seen. Moving to one place to do one thing that will almost certainly go terribly. You rouse yourself, gather the few things you've brought with you, and you know the destiny's waiting for you on the end of this walk. You're simply involved in the biggest thing that's ever happened. Not to you, but to the people around you, to your society, to your culture. You see people from this tribe, from that tribe. They speak slightly different languages. They wear their hair a different way. They have different blue tattoos. They carry their one or two books with them, the leaders all under the charge of one man. You know, as a soldier, this is something that would only be done if it was necessary. You're behind it. It must happen. This is the last day of the march, and you find yourself on a misty hill in 83 or 84 AD in Northeast Scotland, and you turn around. You're a Caledonian, or what would come to be known as a Pict. Then you're turning to face the Roman army of Agricola to defend your home. The last line of defense between Rome and the end of the world. Sources are always important. We take a lot of time to make these podcasts, make sure we have everything right, we tell the story the right way, and we take some narrative liberties when it comes to providing you with the human experience of what's happened. The main source for what has occurred, particularly in the battle that we're going to talk about today, is a Roman historian called Tacitus. Now, there's a few things to know about Tacitus. One, there is no other source that has come down to us that can confirm what he's saying. And the second thing to know is that Gnaeus Julius Agricola, the Roman commander of this battle, is Tacitus' father-in-law. So now you have all the grains of salt to sprinkle on this story in your understanding. Now, there is a lot of archaeological evidence and a collection of other sources will name for you that fill in this picture outside of the battle in particular. But for a window into who the Picts 
the Caledonians really are, we have to start with Tacitus. Because it's the first time that they're mentioned. See, northern Scotland is a harsh land. When you study the different conquests, the English struggles to keep hold of Scotland, particularly the Highlands, the prevalence of even the Gaelic language hanging on in the Highlands, over a thousand years after what we're talking about now, it is seen as a formidable barrier, crossable only by a few people. It's a few insane people that want to deal with northern Scotland. Now imagine a thousand years before what we do know, the recorded history. The place that these people lived in, developed their culture in. The people that ended up on a hill for the Battle of Mons Graupius against the Roman Empire. It's a society that did not have major cities or even towns. The first recorded town in the historical record in Scotland is 700 years away. The archaeological evidence suggests that it was a semi-nomadic society. They had their own language. It only survives in names of places. and It is suggested that it was similar to that that the other Britons spoke, but had adapted free of the influence of Latin, which southern Britain had been exposed to for some time. This language was not, at the time, written down. They left stones commemorating their achievements, depicting daily life that have come to us, but they were not able to tell their own story. And every source that we do work with unlike the Greeks of our first episode, will be from people who encountered the Caledonians, or what we call now the Picts. But the name Pict is still more than 100 years away from our friends on a hill in 83 or 84 AD. See, those people had witnessed destruction, massive destruction. The Romans had been on a four-year campaign up Britain, seemingly unending, cornering, and annihilating tribes. The Caledonians themselves were not one tribe. The groups had different names like Carinae, Comoville, Luigi, Smyrte, Decante. Each of these was a relatively small, nomadic tribe. They were called the clans. They were led by a chief. In opposition to almost every other society, we see the Picts had some cultural peculiarities. For example, the chiefdom would pass down through the maternal side of the family, so this paternal figure of the clan would go down through the mother's side. Now, the chief was considered to had complete power, the father, essentially, of every member of the clan, and so they were autonomous groups that had united to stand on this hill. This wasn't extremely unusual, though. There were obviously protocols in place for when there was a threat from external forces because the Caledonian Confederacy united rather quickly to oppose Roman aggression. This is how they operated. This is how they were known. The archaeological evidence, what we can figure out from the Pictish stones, which if you haven't seen one, 
I would highly suggest Googling them, the enchanting carvings on giant stones stuck into the earth. A lot of the meaning behind which has been lost, which show evidence of an organized culture not only capable of artwork, but higher thinking. And clearly with the organization of the Caledonian Confederacy, an ability to manage logistics. Logistics on a scale to put fifteen to 30,000 troops in a field, despite a small semi-nomadic tribal existence that had not progressed all too much from what you'd have in your mind in southern England when the Romans invaded in North America, tribal societies there, capable of great intelligence and cunning, but without the established central structures of cities and hierarchy. And as you stand on this hill in the fog, this is all you know. Well, this and the Romans are coming to kill you. They're coming to subjugate and to burn. And even Tacitus knows this as the only source of what happened at this battle. He creates a historical figure, somebody that we cannot be sure exists, but remains the first individual member of this tribal society to enter the historical record. Then that is your commander on this hill, Calgicus. Now, Calgicus in Celtic stands for possessing a blade. Of course, their language not entirely known to us, but their cultural similarities to what you would have found in Ireland at the time and what you would have found in Middle England or Northern England at the time, not too different. Slightly more decentralized, slightly more remote, but derivative from those groups of people. There's also the Gaelic word kaljuk that I've certainly mispronounced that means prickly or fierce. It's thought that Calgicus, or Galgicus, as it's sometimes written, is derived from that. Who he actually is remains a mystery, other than he is labeled as a great commander by Tacitus. Quote, the most distinguished for birth and valor among the chieftains and the person chosen to lead this Caledonian confederacy, he is the one that stands before you on this hill. Tribes united, as the Romans found the only stationary thing available to attack in the highlands, the grain stores. Tastus says the reason for the battle is the Romans finally drew the incredibly deft Caledonian confederacy into the open by marching for the grain stores. This is when the Caledonian confederacy finally had to stand and fight. But Tacitus has done one better than giving us the first picked in the historical record, because unfortunately you, standing in the fog on this hill, you did not make it into the historical record. Tacitus gives us an account of Calgicus' speech to his men. In 83-84 AD, the Pictish warrior society entered the grand stage with an absolute bang. And it started with this speech from Calgicus to you, just before the battle. This is how Tacitus writes it, and of course, who knows? what sources Tacitus was working with, how correct this could be, but he had an intimate familiarity with Agricola, Calgicus' opponent on this day. This is what Calgicus said. 
Whenever I consider the origin of this war and the necessities of our position, I have a sure confidence that this day and this union of yours will be the beginning of freedom for the whole of Britain. To all of us, slavery is a thing unknown. There are no lands beyond us, and even the sea is not safe. Menaced as we are by a Roman fleet, and thus in war and battle, in which the brave find glory, even the coward will find safety. Former contests in which, with varying fortune, the Romans resisted, still left in us a last hope of succor inasmuch as being the most renowned nation of Britain. Dwelling in the very heart of the country and out of the sight of the shores of the conquered, we could keep even our eyes unpolluted by the contagion of slavery. To us who dwell on the utmost confines of the earth and of freedom, this remote sanctuary of Britain's glory has up to this time been a defense. Now, however, the furthest limits of Britain are thrown open, and the unknown always passes for the marvelous. But there are no tribes beyond us, nothing indeed but waves and rocks, and the yet more terrible Romans from whose oppression escape is vainly sought by obedience and submission. Robbers of the world, having by their universal plunder exhausted the land, they rifle the deep. If the enemy be rich, they are rapacious. If he be poor, they lust for dominion. Neither the east nor the west has been able to satisfy them. Alone among men, they covet with equal eagerness poverty and riches. To robbery, slaughter, plunder, they give the lying name of empire. They make a solitude and call it peace. With that, Calchicus is never heard from again. But in it, there is an understanding that there is nowhere left to run. After years of what we would call today guerrilla warfare, hounding the Romans, making life difficult for them as they advance up the eastern shore, supported by their navy. It also hints at a connectedness of the world, despite the fact that this is the first time we are meeting these people in a historical record. They are ascribed an awareness to the magnitude of their foe, which of course could be Tacitus bias, but an awareness of East and West and the expanding empire, the wider world, that you wouldn't generally understand to be part of a tribal society that lives on the edge of it. It hints at a broader sophistication in the respect that the Romans show, so often so dismissive of uncultured barbarians, the respect they showed to Calchicus, perhaps to make Agricola look better, but it's not every day that a Roman historian calls you most distinguished for birth and valor. And it is behind Calchicus that you stand now. The Romans, in their own unique way, employing auxiliary troops from Britain, place them at the center of the line and move forward. It's from points like these that you don't know exactly what's happened. I've 
touched on this in podcasts before, but an actual ancient battle. Nobody really knows what that feels like, especially almost for you. Because these are numbers of troops in an importance of battle that has not been seen before in the Highlands. No foe able to muster such a force. The auxiliaries strike up the hill into the heart of the Pictish formation, described by Tacitus as a horseshoe. The chariots, so common in warfare on the British Isles at this time, deployed men's screaming bodies flying as the chariots try to make their move, and the flanks of the Picts push out. But the Roman cavalry gets around them, and you're trapped, outflanked by an organized Roman foe that, according to Tacitus, doesn't even use its legions, just the auxiliaries, the rest of Britain, paid mercenaries. We do not know what happened to Calgicus, but Tacitus does tell us that of the near 30,000 men, of which you are one, 10,000 die. The technology, the organization of the Roman ranks, overwhelming. A mass of desperate, hardy, determined people on a hill in the highlands. But if you feel sad for your past self trying to live vicariously in this moment, much the same as those that we covered in our opening episode, the, the Spartans. Losing the battle does not mean losing the war. For even though Calgicus disappears, he's not reported in Agricola's hostages, this great leader of the Caledonian Confederacy, gone. 20,000 Picts get away. They return to the highlands, the woods, near the battlefield, and by the morning, Roman scouts report that they've disappeared. They're gone. This is where Tacitus gets rather funny. He says that all that you can see after the battle is the distant smoke of burning houses. But of course, the Picts didn't really have houses and settlements in the way that Romans thought about it. This is something that scholars will point to today, saying that Tacitus was making more up than he should have as a historian. And this is something very important to come back to. The seemingly doomed resistance that you've subjected yourself to, well, now you've withdrawn into the woods with your clan, your tribe, and 19,999 other Picts, according to the, the estimate. And the Romans' pursuit, some of them are killed, and then, of course, cannot find the rest of the Picts in the morning. They've simply vanished. But then the luck turns. Agricola is recalled to Rome after his victory by the Emperor Domitian. And the Picts utilize something valuable, incredibly valuable. It's a tool with which they stopped the Roman Empire. They made it not worth their time. It's captured in Calgicus' speech that their rough terrain, their location, had long been their refuge. And whether those are the words he's spoken or not, the sources Tacitus had to work with 
informed him of an understanding among the Picts, among these Caledonians, that they had the terrain advantage because their home was not something that Rome could easily contain. After Agricola was recalled, there was no immediate push to press the advantage after the victory, the disappearance of 20,000 fighting men back into the tribal semi-nomadic societies that Rome couldn't track far away from the coast. That plan was enough. The issue is that plan didn't have the fireworks required to put a name into the historical record. So one can only imagine the discussions, the, the fireside chats, the Pictish stones that were carved to get the Caledonians to not turn tail and run, but to just fade into the hills. It's a phenomenon that's so often ascribed to these clan-based tribal societies. There's the old adage of an Apache warrior standing in a grass field. And that Apache warrior, this is something covered in Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, which is it's a fascinating piece about the Apache Wars. The Apache warrior is standing right next to a U.S. soldier. And he says, turn around and give me about five seconds and then turn back around. And so the U.S. soldier looks away. He says, we're in a grass field. It's not going to go anywhere. Turns back around and cannot find him. One can imagine living in such a harsh terrain, warring clans and tribes, Warpath, a part of life documented by clashes not only between the tribes and the clans, which would have seen themselves not as the Picts, but as separate units, separate political entities to assign our modern way of thinking. They would have had a similar ability, a necessity to work within the environment, to travel, to eat, to drink, and they knew where to go, where to be, and not be found. In southern and central England, there were hubs, there were centers of commerce. But in Caledonia, they tried to defend their grain, and then they vanished. And once Agricola was recalled, you and your clan resume life as normal. Warily scouting for a Roman return that didn't come. Gnaeus Julius Agricola would die in 93 AD. After reigning as the governor of Britain, he was unable to press the final advantage to unite all of Britain, despite the fact that he went back to Rome claiming he'd already done so. He got as far north as Inverness, where a Roman fort was constructed, but then he went home. Agricola would never return to northern Britain, and like Calchicus, would fade into the historical record, dying on his estate. The speculation being that he was poisoned, but no evidence was ever produced for that. The relationship between Agricola and Domitian was rocky. Tacitus believes he was recalled for overshadowing the emperor's improvements, but the Romans had their own game, and the Picts had theirs. And despite taking an incredible defeat, 33% casualties estimated, the sort of sucker punch that finishes off Whole kingdoms, they persisted. By 122 AD, the Emperor Hadrian, preoccupied with wars in the east, 
bothered by Pictish raids and the unruly, ungovernable people that lived in northern Britain built Hadrian's Wall, stretching from the west to the east coast of Britain. Now, this wall still stands today as a testament to how determined Hadrian was to keep them out. In 141 BC, Rome turned its attention to the Caledonians again. Those people that stood on the hill of Mons Graupius and died, your friends that you saw cut down, they're distant memories now. Sixty years have gone by, your clan has returned to a thriving state, free of Roman intervention, often pillaging and sometimes trading with those to the south. You've seen more changes in your lifetime on the highlands than any relative in recent memory. This is shown in the archaeological record where Mediterranean items begin to pop up in what would eventually be known as Pictland until the 9th century. Wine, cookpots, be traced all the way down to the Mediterranean, suggests that even though the raids were occurring after this period, there was an interaction of familiarity with the Romans that there had not been nearly as often before, even through Hadrian's Wall, much the same as the German frontier with Rome, it would have been familiar. The Latin language interacting with those in the highlands. But this still limited by geography and the decentralized structure of your society, the localized structure of what you'd know around you living in this group. In 141, Urbicus was appointed to lead an invasion of lowland Scotland to try and build forts and settlements again in the region, past Hadrian's Wall up towards Falkirk, modern-day Falkirk. What exactly happened for Urbicus on this foray is not entirely known, other than it resulted in the construction of a new wall at Falkirk, called the Antonine Wall. If you think your geography, it's the narrow part right before you get to the Scottish Highlands. There were battles with the Picts, but no large battles. The skirmishes, the hit and runs, the brutal terrain, not knowing it. The Antonine Wall was built. In 209 BC, long after you're gone, and the memory of Mons Graupius kept alive by stories alone, the Romans tried again. Septimus Severus led a campaign into Caledonia to take on these Caledonii, the Caledonian Confederation, again. But according to Dio Cassius, he lost 50,000 men. Made particular note of the barbarity of Pictish women. You couple this with the cultural peculiarity of passing down chiefdoms through the maternal line and we have multiple historical records indicating that women were on fairly level pegging in this early Pictish society. Their barbarism noted by Dio Cassius as Septimus Severus retreated. And it's this event in 209 AD that ingrains in the Roman consciousness that to go beyond the walls in the north is doom. But returning to your Pictish clan in your mind, you understand why this happened. 
the Romans and Agricola found a way to get you in the field and fight a pitched battle that was doomed. Logistics, experience, technology, all with the Romans, the war machine. But over the course of 120 years, the Picts evolved from a backwater into a society, a structure, the Caledonian Confederacy, that could organize and harass and resist Roman advance. This is a massive shift in a society. Now, Caledonians were not perfect here. If the Romans oppressed their advantage, Tacitus certainly makes it seem as though all of Britain would have come to heel. But they didn't. And the Caledonians persisted and foiled two further expeditions with great loss to the Romans. To understand the development of Pictish military tactics, one needs to just read Cassius Dio's account of the Emperor Severus attacking again. Severus, accordingly desiring to subjugate the whole of it, invaded Caledonia. But as he advanced through the country, he experienced countless hardships in cutting down trees, leveling the heights, filling up the swamps, and bridging the rivers. But he fought no battle and beheld no enemy in battle array. The enemy purposely put sheep and cattle in front of the soldiers for them to seize in order that they might be lured on still further until they were worn out. For in fact, the water caused great suffering to the Romans, and when they became scattered, they would be attacked. Then, unable to walk, they would be slain by their own men in order to avoid capture, so that a full 50,000 died. Severus did not desist until he approached the extremity of the island. Here he observed most accurately the variation of the sun's motion and the length of the days and the nights in summer and winter, respectively. Having thus been conveyed through practically the whole of the hostile country, for he actually was conveyed in a covered litter most of the way on account of his infirmity, he returned to the friendly portion, after he had forced the Britons to come to terms on the condition that they should abandon a large part of their territory. As you probably noticed at the end, despite incredible losses and brilliant guerrilla tactics, a developed military operation that instead of being bloodthirsty and paint-covered, was measured and skillful, Severus did gain access to more of the lowlands and built forts there. The Caledonians revolted a year later against the presence of the forts. Severus fell ill, then he died. And over 130 years, these mysterious people of the highlands had stopped Rome, well short of conquering them. Unfortunately, that is where we have to leave these ancient people that we've tried to put you in the mind of. For when we started making this episode... 
we had no idea how little information there really is about the Picts. For one, the point that we've reached in our story, 210 AD, the name Pict was just beginning to come into use, meaning the Painted Ones. The sources are fleeting, they're archaeological or circumstantial. And what I ask you to do, obviously, because while majoring in history, I'm not a historian. The people that I work with to put these episodes together are not historians, we're just people that like history, is understanding the type of social cultural change that is required to be able to formulate and execute a battle plan to foil a collection of Roman legions led by an emperor himself. One of the finest historical examples of overcoming odds through guerrilla warfare. An understanding of logistics to rival Rome itself, one that they could not counter with fleets and supply trains of mental warfare leading them on with cattle and sheep into a slaughter to defend their nomadic and hidden way of life. But as so many historians lament this culture, these tales, the leaders that led to these decisions, the the clans, the heroes are lost. All that's left, as is so often said, is the way that you made them feel. And all the way up to Bede, the famed clergyman, author, some 500 years after this. That feeling was a mix of being impressed and fear. For the Picts would go on until the ninth century. Our sources, which we'll name at the end, of course, in detail, are very sure to point out that this is a very different Pictland than existed when the Romans were there, which is why we fixate on the people that stopped the Romans. It's a Pictland that adopted Christianity, became a united kingdom as the numbers began to dwindle and eventually merged into the kingdom of Alba and became the derivative of Scotland itself. But these Picts, these Caledonii, they were the wild north. But they weren't so wild. They had a language, a hierarchical political structure that allowed for quick mobilization and decisive decision-making without breaking rank in a notable or terminal way. They'd begun the development of road networks, as found by archaeological excavations. And they'd done what no other group of people in the wide, vast world inhabited by the Roman Empire had done to this time. Despite how little is known of them, these are the people that inspire all. The Caledonians who at the time that we leave our story in 210 A.D., were just becoming known as the Picts. The first people to stop the Roman Empire.
sources we used for this podcast, Sally Foster's Picts, Gales, and Scots, Early Historic Scotland, Juliana Griggs' The Picts Reimagined, Stuart McHardy's A New History of the Picts, Noble, Gondek, Campbell, and Cook, Between Prehistory and History, The Archaeological Detection of Social Change Among the Picts, Duncan B. Campbell's Monsgropius, for extra background on Agricola, Anthony Burley's Lilius Agricola. <laughs>